Blog Talk Radio. goes into a laboratory to test and repeat and to see and to verify a repeatable test. I say thumbs up to genuine science. Thank you for finding the cure to a disease. We love that kind of science. And yet there's a little category switcheroo that happens. We call what happened in the past science, taking a look at what we think is data, a dinosaur bone, what happened in the geological columns. We call it science because we then interpret an old earth presentation that somehow all this stuff just randomly came together, got all organized, wah and la, here we are. Who says science? Problem with that is that is not science. Historical science isn't science at all. Now, these can be smart people. 
They can take a look at stuff. They can even do some tests in a laboratory about how things are composed, but they can't tell us how these things happen. Why? Because they weren't eyewitnesses. They can't bring it into a lab and test that process and repeat that process and observe that process. So historical science isn't really science at all. And yet, because of that little category confusion, the world puts a lot of stock in science. And so the kids are taught, right in diapers, that, hey, you evolved from primordial goo. You are nothing but lucky stardust. You came from billions of billions of years of random chance. Who says? Scientists say. We tend to bow to the god science in our 21st century technological era, but it's not just the unbelievers. I fear far too many Christians are intimidated by the god science, and so they take what they are told by typically unbelieving scientists, not all of them, but by unbelieving scientists, and they try then to blend that with our holy book, which says something really different. There is clear historical narrative in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He did it in a six 24-hour day period. It is as clear as it could possibly be, and yet the scientists say, no, we're billions and billions of years old. What are we to do? Believe God's holy book? Or maybe could we just kind of import some of that and change what it clearly states and still maintain orthodoxy. To be clear, this is not an issue of heresy. There are good believers who are going to disagree with me, a guy like Ken Ham. But I would like to make the case that when we import historical science, which isn't science at all, in a subtle sort of way, we're actually unhitching a part of the Old Testament. We call it theistic evolution, that God didn't do it in six 24-hour days not all that long ago. No, he did it over billions and billions of years ago, and we think it's okay. We really haven't compromised much by doing that, but Kevin DeYoung would disagree. Theologian Kevin DeYoung, citing the many, many problems with importing historical science, which isn't science at all, into Genesis and calling it theistic evolution. Here's just one little problem with that position. Adam and Eve were not the first human beings. They were just Neolithic farmers among about 10 million other human beings on Earth at that time. Hey, wait a second. That's not what Genesis says. God created just those two human beings, Adam, our federal head. That's what Romans 5 says, after all. Huh, you mean there were others? Why aren't they written about in the book of Genesis? Hey, great question. How's about because Adam and Eve were the first human beings? If God evolved the place, there were a bunch of other, well, really close to being people running around. I guess Neanderthals. But Adam and Eve, they must have just evolved just a little teeny tiny bit. Maybe his back wasn't as hairy. I don't know. But suddenly, voila, he's a human being. That is just one problem with theistic evolution. But there are more. Number two from Kevin DeYoung. Adam was not specially formed by God of dust of the ground, as it says in Genesis 2, but had two human parents. Hey, two human parents? That's not what Genesis says. Exactly. Number three problem with theistic evolution, 
Eve was not directly made by God of a rib that the Lord God had taken from the man. Genesis 2.22. But she also had two human parents. Are we starting to see that taking something that was not observed, that is not repeatable, that is not verifiable, that is a worldview that is bent on providing a mechanism to suppress the truth in unrighteousness should not be incorporated into our holy book? Um, you said I... No, I was from Wretched, and you can find out more about Wretched at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G, and you can see it on YouTube, and on wretched.org they have their radio show and their TV show, so check that out. And now, let's see... Gonna get ready with the lesson. The lesson today is John MacArthur and our God will not be mocked. Trying to find it. Sorry. There it is. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you have never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It will show you the power you have as a believer to defeat worry and to experience profound peace in every circumstance. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2021. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. This morning I'm going to uh, challenge you a little bit. We're going to go into the Word of God and I'm going to ask that you go with me and stay with me in this. And I can promise you the reward will be just exactly what you would expect when you give attention to the Word of God. But let's begin in Luke 17, verses 20 to 25. We're going back to this passage. We've done that several times now. Luke 17:20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, "The kingdom of God is." not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. We have just experienced an inauguration. The inauguration is an event designed to mark the ascent of ruling authority. It is by design to be as 
public as possible, to demonstrate to as many as possible the significance and power of the ruling authority. An inauguration is kind of a stepchild of a coronation, which is the declaration before all of the power and authority of a monarch, a king. Now, we've never had a king in America. We, in fact, pride ourselves on the American Revolution, in which we threw off the rule of a king, a British king by the name of George III. We celebrate the fact that we have freed ourselves from kings. That has become much the way of the world. There are few monarchies who have actual kings. There are some symbolic kings, powerless symbolic kings and queens. There are some autocratic military monarchical dictators where one man rules with power even over life and death. But an absolute monarchy is very rare. There are only a few. That is a place where one man rules with sovereign, supreme power over everyone else, unrestricted by any law, any legislature, any tradition, or any custom. Today, there is Brunei in Asia. There is Eswatini, also known as Swaziland in Africa. There is Oman in the Middle East. There is Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which is a coalition of small monarchies. Oh, there's one more. There actually is one true monarchy, one absolute monarchy. It is the smallest nation in the world, 121 acres, 825 people. It is Vatican City. Vatican City is called an ecclesiastical theocracy, a kingdom with an absolute sovereign. That absolute sovereign is the Pope. There have been 266 of them through the history of that theocratic ecclesiastical kingdom. He rules not only over that kingdom, but over all who by extension belong to that kingdom because they're part of the Roman Catholic Church. Currently, the throne is occupied by a former bar bouncer and janitor who likes the tango by the name of Jorge Mario Bergoglio, who took the name Francis. The world has no other monarchies, really. There are some tribes here and there that have one-man rule. But we basically, in, in our time, resent monarchies. 
we celebrate the end of monarchies, the end of dictatorships, the end of kings. We hail democracy. In our country, we have spent countless dollars, countless lives, countless years trying to turn other countries into democracies like us. Now, I may shock you. The Bible doesn't advocate democracy. The Bible doesn't mention democracy. The Bible doesn't comment on democracy. The Bible doesn't define democracy. There is no place in all of the Bible where you even find democracy. There is no country revealed in Scripture where it existed. It is never affirmed by God. Now, I told you last week that I do not believe as a Christian that I can support strongly freedom of religion because that would be to violate the first commandment, right? Have no other gods. You say, well, doesn't the church need freedom of religion to move forward? No. In no way does any political law aid or hinder the church of Jesus Christ. We are a separate kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. We would fight if the kingdom were of the world to make sure we got our space in the world. But this is not a kingdom that is part of this world. This is a kingdom of another world. The church does not need help from Washington or any other government. When Jesus said, I will build my church in the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, He assured all the forces of evil that would be relentlessly against the church, the gates of hell, would never be able to thwart His purpose. I think we need to be reminded that the world, not just in its social perspectives, but even in its political perspectives, is never intended to be a friend of the church or an ally in any way. Listen to the words of our Lord in John 15:18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. There's the issue. If you decide that you love the world, you can wiggle your way into it and draw out some level of affection. But because you are not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. If you are who I chose you to be, you will be hated by the world. That does not thwart the purpose of God for His church in the world. We don't need laws. We don't need politicians for Christ to build His church. And remember the word that I said to you, Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours 
also. You're tied to me. By the way, he who hates me, he said, hates my father. In John 16:33, in the next chapter, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. Told you last week, we lose, right? Now, for now, in this world you will have thalipsis, pressure, tribulation. But, he said, I have overcome the world. The end of the story, Christ wins and we win in Christ. But losing now and winning then has nothing to do with any political help. So here's another surprise to add to that one. Um, the Bible doesn't recommend, prefer, or even discuss democracy. The ancient world had kings. No other form of government appears either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Kings were a common grace. We talk about God giving common grace, and government is common grace to bring order to society. We understand that. But do you also understand that the most common, common grace of governmental character is a monarchy? In fact, so common were kings that we find in the Old Testament no nation under any other kind of government. So normal was it to have a king that the epic tragedy of Israel in the Old Testament was that they wanted a king like all other pagan nations. Was Israel a democracy? Never. What was it? It was a theocratic monarchy and God was king. Yahweh was their king. The covenant God was their king. The Lord Yahweh was Israel's king forever. You would think that would be enough, right? Isaiah 44, 6. And Isaiah has a lot to say about this. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. Did you hear that? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am first, and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Verse 8 of that same chapter, he says, Is there any God besides me? I know of none. So the King of Israel is the one God. In Isaiah 33:22, we read, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our King. He will save us. That was the confession of the people. Listen to the response from heaven. Isaiah 43:15. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And in Malachi 1.14, God says, I am a great King. So great a King was He that He was feared among the nations. There's only one God in the universe. And He 
in His mercy and grace, gave Himself to a people, the Jews, to be their king. What an astonishing privilege, right? And everyone in the ancient world knew God was Israel's king. They knew about this God who had delivered them from Egypt. They knew about this God whose power had drowned the Egyptian army. They knew about this God who had sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness. They knew about this God who had brought them into the land and allowed them to conquer powerful resident enemies. And they knew that the people worshipped this God because when they came into the land, they came in with the tabernacle, right? A tent. Everywhere they went with the tent, they set up camp. All the tribes were around a little box called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant had cherubim because God dwells in the presence of the cherubim. That was the symbol of His throne. God is invisible, but God demonstrated His presence in a symbolic way in the ark. And they carried the ark everywhere they went, put it in the middle, and all the tribes focused in on the ark. If you don't think sin makes you stupid, get ready for this story. (laughs) Under attack from some Midianites, Israel decided they wanted a king. They wanted a king? You mean they wanted another king other than God, Yahweh, the God of the universe, the true king, judge, redeemer? Yes, they wanted a king. Well, who was... Who was overseeing life in Israel before they had a king? God. It was a theocratic kingdom, and God had agents. Those agents were judges and prophets. One of those judges, turn in your Bible to Judges chapter 8, was a very familiar man by the name of Gideon. We don't have time for the entire story, but it's an incredible story of how God used Gideon. And it leads us into chapter 8, verse 22. Gideon had just had a great victory. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Let's start Let's start a family monarchy. You be our king. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. Why? What's the next line? The Lord shall rule over you. You don't trade him in for me. That's insane. The last of the judges was a man named Samuel. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. And we're going to go through this story. This is an astonishing story. In a sense, it's the end 
of the reign of God over Israel. Chapter 3, verse 19, it says that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail. All Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord, so he was a judge and a prophet. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So this is exactly the way the kingdom should operate, right? God is the king and He mediates His kingdom through the words that He gives to His prophets. The Lord had His way. The Lord had His way with Samuel. Then we come to chapter 4 monumental. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistine army camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines had killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves the sh from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord. That is the symbol of God's presence. That's His throne. Let, let's take that that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So now what you know has happened is that the ark, which was the symbol of the actual presence of God in the midst of His covenant people, has become a good luck charm. Sin has made these people stupid. And even with as noble a prophet judge as Samuel, their stupidity could not be avoided. So they lost the battle and lost lives, and they said, we need to get God down there. Get the box. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord who sits above the cherubim, remind, reminding them that this is the throne of God. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with great shouts so that the earth resounded. Why? Because, hey, God showed up. The good luck charm. When the Philistines heard the noise, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. They feared the God of Israel because they knew the history of His power. They feared Him more than Israel loved Him. Woe to us, they said. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So pep talk. You can't be intimidated by this God. You've got to go to war. So the Philistines fought. Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel thirty thousand foot soldiers. God is saying, you're not using me as a magic charm. 
the ark of God, verse 11, was taken. Philistines took God. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Didn't turn out so well, did it? Somebody said, get God and we'll win. They got God and they were massacred. What happened? What happened? Go to verse 19. Well, verse 18, first Eli fell over backward, broke his neck and died because he was old and heavy. His daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. So she dies in childbirth. Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Eli is dead. 30,000 soldiers are dead. The wife of Phinehas is giving birth. She's dead. The child lives. And about the time of her death, they said, Don't be afraid. You've given birth to a son. She didn't answer or pay attention. Listen to this. She called the boy Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken. And because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. You know what she means? God's gone. We may have a box, but we don't have God. Chapter 5, if you think that's a problem for Israel, imagine what a problem is for the Philistines. Now they have God. (laughs) Philistines took the Ark of God, brought it to Ebenezer, then to Ashdod. Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was a kind of a reverse mermaid, male uh, fish head, human legs bizarre idol. So when the Ashdodites rose in the morning, after setting God, imagine the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon. They came early in the morning and Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And they said, oh, somebody knocked him over. So they took Dagon and set him in his place. But when they rose the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And only this time, the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold and the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Somebody decapitated that idol. You're not putting him in the same place with the true and living God. Well, that was the end of the religion of Dagon, obviously. So verse 5 says, Neither the priests of Dagon nor all who enter Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That religion went out of existence immediately. I mean, if the God of Israel can whack off your head and your hands, uh, we don't need you. So the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, and they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. And So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of God be brought around to Gath. Send it out of here. Send it to another town. Gath, that's where Goliath was from. So they took the ark to Gath, and they brought it around, and the hand of the Lord was against that city with very great confusion. He smote the men of the city, young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they said, Get that thing out of town. They sent it to Ekron. 
The ark came to Ekron. The Ekronites cried out, Yikes, they brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. This is a problem to have God on your hands. And to be mocking God and dishonoring God in all these ways is a very deadly kind of activity. So they had a meeting in verse 11. They gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who didn't die were smitten with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. God is just leaving a slaughter everywhere the ark goes. Chapter 6 says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. This is most interesting. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But you shall surely return to him a guilt offering. What are they? These are pagans saying this. Don't just send that back. Send that back with a guilt offering. What do you mean? Send it back with something that indicates you know you violated that God. Admit that what happened to you is what you deserve because you violated that God. What would, what would we send? Fascinating. They said, well, what shall be the guilt offering which we return to him? And they said, five golden tumors and five golden mice. Why? That's called a votive offering. You create something that resembles the punishment. The mice because of the plague. The tumor because tumors. So they were making mice and tumors to send back as a way to say to the offended God, please, we recognize that we have offended you. Verse 5 sort of sums it up. If we give glory to the God of Israel, perhaps He will ease His hand from you, your gods and your land. Get God out of here. And don't send Him back empty. Send Him back with recognition that you have sinned against Him. Go over to chapter 6, verse 17. These are the golden tumors. This is getting more serious. They, they are so afraid of this deity that they start making these votive representations of His judgment in gold. Golden tumors and golden mice. And they set it on the ark, verse 18, to send it back. Came to Beth Shemesh. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. What? Yes. There were things in the ark, right? They looked. 50,000 plus God killed. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Verse 20, the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? You can't survive an encounter with Him that is sinful. The ark then was taken to Kiriath-Jerim. It stayed there for 20 years 
And all the house of Israel lamented. Chapter 7, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you. Oh, here's the problem. God didn't defend them because they had turned to idols. And direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Asheroth and served the Lord alone. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. That was a kind of a revival, maybe? Verse 6 says, They gathered to Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, fasted, said, We've sinned against the Lord. Confession. Verse 8, Samuel says, You better keep it up. Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God. Just for the sake of time, down to verse 15, God gave them peace with their enemies. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And remember now, when it says he judged Israel, he was passing on to them the word of the Lord. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. There he judged Israel, built there an altar. Now just rehearse that history, okay? They have God as their king. The God who led them through the plagues in Egypt, drowned the entire Egyptian army, brought them through years in the wilderness, brought them into the promised land, gave them victory over their enemies. God who has just put on his power display, slaughtering all kinds of alien pagans. They now have God back. They have a faithful judge. Maybe this is permanent, right? Chapter 8. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and then the name of his second was Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, didn't walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. Okay, here we have crooked politicians. <laughs> so listen to this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Now you've grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. I mean, th this is clear and complete apostasy. We, we don't want God as our king. The thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Every nation had a king. These, these, these two sons of Samuel aren't working out so well. Give us a king. We want a king like everybody else has a king. In chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have what? Rejected me from being king over them. I mean, sin make you stupid or what? But listen to their voice. 
solemnly warn them, tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked of him a king. He said, do you know what this is going to mean? There will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest, and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed, he'll raise your taxes, and of your vineyards and give it to the officers and to his servants. He'll also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, for, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You know what you're doing? You're trading in the Redeemer King for an evil, anti-God, narcissistic, autocratic dictator. Verse 21, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. He said, Lord, I can't believe this, but I'm going to tell you what they said, as if the Lord didn't hear. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice. Give him a king. Give him a king. Chapter 12, verse 12 says, A king shall reign over you, although the Lord your God was your king. This is the epic apostasy of Israel. Enter, you know who, Saul. Saul that is going to be their king. Go over to chapter 10. They've selected Saul. We won't go through all that story, but um, Samuel, verse 17 of chapter 10, calls the people together Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians, from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. By the way, any king in Israel was supposed to be from the tribe of Judah. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families, and the Matrite family was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was found. Saul, why him? Well, we, we already know because verse 23 says he was taller than anybody else. And more tall, dark, handsome, and cowardly. Verse 22 says, where's Saul? 
He's hiding in the baggage. Oh, great. We got a tall, dark, handsome guy in the baggage hiding. By the way, what did he do? Uh, he looked for lost donkeys. That was his job. Unfortunately, he didn't do it very well, couldn't find them. He went from one end of the land to the other end of the land, couldn't find them. And somebody said, Oh, they're already back home. Tall, dark, handsome, cowardly donkey finder. Sin makes you stupid. And it makes you make stupid choices about leadership. Who trades in the eternal God for a tall, dark, handsome, stupid donkey finder who wants to hide in the baggage? So why did God allow this? As a judgment. Do you understand that? As a judgment. You want a king? I'll give you a king. I'll give you... The king that will show you how foolish you are to turn from God. Saul is the anti-king. He is the illustration of the worst kind of ruler. That's God's whole point. Saul was a complete disaster. And we know the, the sad story of it. The post-mortem on Saul, um, just a few verses, chapter 15, verse 23, rebellion is as the sin of divination, insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul was such a disaster. The people rejected the Lord to get Saul, and then the Lord rejected Saul because Saul rejected him. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in their words, your words, because I feared the people and listened to your voice. There's the coward hiding in the baggage who fears the people, tall, dark, handsome, empty-headed donkey finder. He was a total disaster. You don't hear this very often in the Bible. Verse 35 of chapter 15, the Lord regretted He had made Saul king over Israel. Oh, by the way, Samuel said, there's not going to be any future for you. You're done. The next king won't come from your family. Again, the wisdom from below is demonic, isn't it? Sin makes you stupid. The Lord was kind to them. The next king was who? David. And David was like Samuel. Twice it says, the Lord was with him. He was a man with a heart for God. But God reminded them with Saul that when you trade him in for anyone else, that wicked insanity is devastating. Beyond shocking to me. There's a passage in Hosea, chapter 13, that is insightful. As Hosea the prophet pronounces judgment on Israel or Ephraim, listen to this, 13th chapter of Hosea. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. 
He exalted Himself in Israel, but through Baal He did wrong and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they will be like the morning cloud, like the dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. They're going to disappear. They're going to vaporize, God says. Since I have been the Lord your God, since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me as He blessed them in the land of milk and honey. They forgot Him. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie in wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. He's promising them divine judgment. And he came at the hands of the Assyrians, who came in about 732 and took them all away, and they never returned. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. How does that happen? Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and prince. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. Some interesting realities in that 11th verse. Those are an imperfect verb, which means they're continuous action. Literally, I kept giving you kings in my anger and kept taking away in my wrath. And what it's referring to is in the northern kingdom, God gave them ten kings, all of them evil, wicked kings. He gave it as a judgment. He took them away as a judgment, gave them a worse one as a judgment, took them away. Action repeated again and again and again. The Lord said, you wanted a king. I gave you kings. I put them there in my anger. I removed them in my wrath. I put another one in my anger, removed them in my wrath. Your idolatry continued, and it all ended after those ten kings and you going into captivity. So when you trade the true king for any other king, you have mocked God. Is there hope? Look at chapter 14 of Hosea. This is the heart of God. Through the prophet, he's crying, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to Him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, Our God, to the work of our hands. We won't worship idols we make. For in you the orphan finds mercy. Do that and I will heal their apostasy. I'll love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I'll be like the dew to Israel, like the blossom on a lily. He'll take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and His beauty will be like the olive tree and His fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. And those who live in His shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. O oh, Ephraim, or Israel, what more have I to do with idols? 
It is I who answer and look after you. I am the luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. The ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Who is your God? Who is your king? 200 years of warning before the captivity came. Israel turned in their king, the true and living God, for a sequence of wicked rulers. They chose a fake, a fraud. They chose an anti-king, a kind of anti-Christ, over the eternal king of the universe. Oh, by the way, God promised to send a king, and He did. A true king. He told David in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to send someone out of your loins who will have an everlasting kingdom. And the Gospel of Luke, of course, begins when word comes down from heaven to Mary from an angel. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Isaiah said, That child born to us will be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Father of eternity. And he came the true king again. And it all culminated when they had to make a choice. Did they want the true king? Or did they want a thief and a robber named Barabbas? The same kind of horrendous sinful stupidity rises in the 18th chapter of John, verse 33. Pilate enters the praetorium, says to Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nations and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And here's the key. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, cynically, what is truth? When he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but who? Barabbas over Jesus? That's the folly. Over to verse 15 of chapter 19. Away with Him, away with Him, crucify Him. 
Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. There's only one true king, right? The tragedy of Israel's history, the tragedy of human history, is that the world doesn't want to recognize the true king, the true and living God and His Son. But God has already determined His Son will be king. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will give him the nations as his inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. He will break them with a rod of iron, shatter them like earthenware. Show discernment, O kings. Take warning, O judges. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Listen to this. Kiss the Son that He be not angry and you perish in the way for His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. You better take your refuge in the true King, right? So, the story of Israel is a story of blasphemy, a story of abomination, a story of apostasy, a story of defection. Inconceivably, a story of trading in the one true God for the anti-king, the wicked king, the foolish king, Saul, trading in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately for the Antichrist fool named Caesar. It was during David's time, 2 Samuel chapter 6. I want to show you something. Let's close there. 2 Samuel chapter 6. So they finally want to bring the uh, ark back. There was a prescription for how the ark was to be moved. It had rings, and you put up a long pole so that no one ever touched the ark. No one touched the ark. Took long poles, put them through the rings, carried it that way. They didn't do that. It says they wanted to move the, the ark. And um, verse 3, they placed the ark of God on a new cart. What is that? That's a clear violation of God's order. So they could bring it from the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. A couple of guys named Uzzah and Ahio uh, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all his house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fur, uh, wood and with harps, lyres, tambourines, castanets, cymbals. This is like a coronation now. God's coming back. They're going to re-enthrone God in the place where He belongs. Verse 6, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God, took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. Started to topple off the ark, so Uzzah 
reached out to steady it. Look at verse 7. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died by the ark of God. Let me say something. You better be careful when you put your hand on God. I thought of that in that inauguration. You can say whatever you want to say, but when you touch the ark, when you place your hand on the throne of God, because God is enthroned in His Word, and you place your hand on the Word of God and pledge to do the very things that blaspheme His name. You talk about a high-risk action. All Uzzah did was what he thought was showing some respect. God doesn't want your respect. He wants your obedience. Don't tell me that you advocate the slaughter of babies in the womb. Don't tell me you want to destroy masculinity, femininity, marriage. Don't tell me you want to fill the world with LGBTQ people in leadership. You want to justify transgender activity. Don't tell me you, you want to invite more Muslims in who represent a religion from hell and then put your hand on the throne of God. You can make any pledge you want. Don't mock God. A final word. Just a reminder. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The message has to end here. Seek the kingdom, right? Seek the kingdom by seeking the king. Repent, the king is here. Repent and receive the gospel. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we certainly are reminded of an Old Testament king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who ended up mocking you, was driven away from humanity, for seven years lived in the field. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven. His hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And he was there until he learned that you rule over the realm of mankind. At the end of that period, he said, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all His works are true and His ways are just, and He's able to humble those who walk in pride. Lord, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. How wonderful is that? As wicked as he was, there was grace where there was repentance. Our desire, of course, is not judgment. That's why we live in this world shining as lights in this perverse generation so that people can see the light and turn from the darkness. There's another king that Daniel wrote about. This is our king. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man is our King, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. All other kings will be crushed by Him. All those who worship any other God face only eternal judgment. May the light of the church shine brightly. May the gospel be clear. May we proclaim it with urgency and love for your glory, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. In the beginning, God made everything. God simply spoke in the world. 
Genesis isn't literal history. It's their attempt to fit millions of years and evolution into the Bible. But that's not how the New Testament authors treated Genesis. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, they accepted Genesis as history. The authors refer to people like Adam, Eve, Noah and Abraham as real people. They write about the early events in history such as creation, the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah all in the same way as real historical events. The Bible speaks with one voice. And from cover to cover, it testifies that the Bible is a book of history, the only foundation for a biblical worldview. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged with the truth of God's Word and the Gospel at AnswersRadio.com.
my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And though the wrong seems oh so strong, God. Genesis. This is Ken Ham, whose ministry has produced the family-friendly Answers Bible curriculum. How should we read the book of Genesis? You know, some argue we should read it as figurative language, that it's not real history. But that's not how the New Testament writers treated it. In Matthew 19, Jesus answered a question about divorce and marriage. And he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus quoted from the Genesis account of the creation of Adam and Eve to support the doctrine of marriage. He certainly believed in a literal Genesis, and he ought to know he's the creator. Get answers to your questions about creation, evolution, Genesis, the truth of God's Word, and more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged at AnswersRadio.com.
When were Adam and Eve created? This is Ken Ham, a missionary to our evolutionized culture and even the church. When did God create Adam and Eve? Well, some Christians believe in evolution and say Adam and Eve were created at the end of the evolutionary process, tens of thousands of years ago, and millions of years after the beginning. But that's not what Genesis teaches, or what Jesus believed. Genesis says God created Adam and Eve on day six of the creation week. And Jesus said that they were created at the beginning of creation. They weren't created millions of years after the beginning. They were there right from the beginning just a few thousand years ago. You know, other Christians argue that Adam and Eve weren't even real people at all. But that's for tomorrow. Want to know more about Genesis, creation, evolution, and more? Go to our faith-affirming website at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again at AnswersRadio.com. Here we go, kids, gather round. A brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph, and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve on day number six created Adam and Eve. In the image of the beautiful most high God told them be fruitful and multiply Everything's yours but that tree do not try Cause in the day you eat it You're surely gonna die I'm sure you know the rest Yes they failed the test And ever since then the world has been a big mess So as we read the Bible it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus When we read God's word today, the greatest saints have their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. I wasn't good enough, no. 
Adam and Eve, real people? This is Ken Ham, author of the new book on raising a godly family, Will They Stand? Did Adam and Eve really live? You know, sadly, many Christians say no, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Both the Old and New Testaments make it clear Adam and Eve were real people. Adam's sin brought death, and that's why Jesus came and died a physical death. Think about it. If death really isn't the penalty for sin, why did Jesus come and die? Now, many of these same people argue that Jesus didn't really die in our place on the cross. They'll say he was just a good example. That's where this kind of thinking leads, to a rejection of the truth of the gospel. Genesis is history. Adam and Eve were real people. Subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or view a transcript at AnswersRadio.com. Given now we can pray to our Father in heaven above. We can come to our God at any time of the day and He'll receive us so great His love. He wants us to talk to Him with a sincere heart and rejoice when we're really glad. And when it seems like things are falling apart, we can pray when we're feeling sad. And when we do bad things, we confess our sins. We can pray all alone or with our friends because of Jesus.
Jesus believed in a global flood. This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible. Many Christians today believe the flood in Genesis was just a small localized flood. But that doesn't match the description given in Genesis, or even the words of Jesus. Jesus mentioned Noah and the flood as real historical events. And he compared the flood judgment to his coming judgment on wickedness when he returns. Now Jesus' coming judgment is going to be a global one. Every person will face judgment because of their sin. Now if Noah's flood was just a local event and people outside the area survived, well, his comparison between the global flood and the coming judgment wouldn't make any sense. The Bible's clear. The flood, it was global. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum when you go to AnswersRadio.com and find thousands of free faith-affirming resources at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. When I think of 
about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust he died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge I am free. Forever this grace it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that be, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, Never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful. You never change, never Thinking how does one define wise Feels like yesterday I was a newcomer Fresh in the game, ready to make the truth thunder But as the beat plays, they lose wonder After a few summers, the band's ready for a new drummer Doesn't matter if you're not ready yet Yesterday I was a cadet, now they call me a vet But it's part of common sense that the artist time will end To the young, this topic can be hard to comprehend They don't come close to understanding How you can go from most demanded To abandoned in the ocean stranded Surrounded by the waves of your weariness Some things you only learn from age and experience And it's plain to me that all the famous men you see The time is coming when they will be a faded memory Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah What in the world was your mind thinking? You couldn't see the sand of time sinking Cause one day you hot, the next day you not One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah Better plan for the future, kid Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is Whatever happened to so-and-so, that's what they wanna know Eventually we learn that they all come and go Today's rising star, tomorrow dies with scars Today they all struck, tomorrow you washed up I remember watching Jordan's Hall of Fame speech Thinking this is what it's like to watch the lame reach and gasp But he tries to grasp what lies in the past Never to return what lies in the past Did he tell himself, was he lost or sober? Did he know it was all but over? The moment that AI crossed him over If I could be like, didn't include dying light Let's shine the light on the one they call Iron Mike Nowadays he's known for being all weird But back in 88, nobody was more feared the peak of his powers, his opponents would retreat in moments he would eat and devour. Snuff with punches, but we must discuss this. Crushed it just enough to trust his toughness. Pride brings us to justice. You puffed up with smugness? You gonna meet Buster Douglas. Amazing that, which blazed like Petro. The new praise that made the waves in the metros. Was praised for days, but just a phase like retros. And fades like echoes. Echoes, echoes, echoes. 
time thinking. You couldn't see the sand of time sinking. Cause one day you hot, the next day you not. One day you on top, next day you get dropped, yeah. Better plan for the future, kid. Time catches up to everyone, no matter who it is. What I'm speaking on is seriously welcomed by the few. Even no experience to tell you that it's true. On your radio station, this won't be found on the playlist. Wisdom, the sound of the stages, resounding for ages. The older I get, I notice it. The whole of the script, hmm, it's found in the pages. A holy writ, not the cash speech of the reverend. But what a man sees under heaven. Ecclesiastes 111. No matter who you are, death aims to stop ya Whether banker, doctor, or Frank Sinatra Before your time is done, meet the timeless one The dying, death-defying, rising, shining sun King Jesus astounds and amazes He pounded the pavement to save those who were bound to their cages So let us praise the one who made the Everglades Our debt was paid, so in glory we'll never fade Never fade, never fade
stood in old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest stand best for a world of lost sinners was slain So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged Oh 
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, See smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Better go out with Yanti and friends and the VI really. Bye for now.